0: Welcome back to Core Anesthesia, whether you are a student prepping for tests and boards or a CRNA here to earn CEUs, we are glad you've joined us. For more about us, make sure to check us out on Instagram at coreanesthesia and online at coreanesthesia.com.
1: Welcome back to Core Anesthesia, I'm Cole here with Tanner and today we want to do a discussion about blood gas analysis And this can be something that is very prevalent in, obviously, anesthesia-based cases where you may have a bleeding patient or you have a very high acuity patient. Uh, You have somebody that's coming down from the ICU. They're intubated already. You want to get a a blood gas and kind of get your basis and see where they're at for maybe any changes during the case. Um, This is also something that's very relevant uh, to a lot of us when we used to work in the ICU, or if some of you listeners out there are still working in the ICU, uh, APGs are 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 things that uh, we typically go to when you have a very high acuity patient, and so this isn't something that routinely we would be drawing and and getting during uh, your more bread and butter scheduled outpatient procedures, Um, but this is something that we we need to know for one when is warranted that we get an ABG, but then two, it's not enough just to know when you get it, but when you see the results, how do you act upon that? How do you interpret the results? Uh, when you when you see the pH level that's altered, how do you know how to intervene? And we want to talk about those things today. Um, first of all, we're going to do a background about the fundamentals of a blood gas, uh, what's going on intrinsically in the body that are going to give us the numbers that we're going to see. But then more so than that, how do you interpret, meaning metabolic acidosis, uh, respiratory acidosis, alkalosis, et cetera. But then more so than that, with each one, how do we intervene? Do we look at an anion gap? Do we look at a base deficit? These are all things that are very important and that we need to know how to uh, make the next steps when we see these results on an ABG.
0: I think it's important when we're starting here to think about, you know, why would we do this in the first place? Or what would be something that our blood gas would be telling us about? And it's important to think about, you know, just for starters, the physiological responses to acid-base imbalances in the body. So uh, if you think about a patient that um, is acidemic, you have decreased release of catecholamines think of your sepsis picture, you're going to have uh, myocardial depression. I use sepsis just as one example of an acidemia With myocardial depression, you're going to have decrease in contractility. You're also going to have decreased myocardial response to catecholamines. So not only are you going to have a decreased amount of catecholamines that are released, but you're also having a decreased response you'll see uh, seizures, possible confusion. On the other side with alkalemia, you can see decreased cerebral blood flow. This is something that we actually intend to do sometimes with if we're doing you know, a neuro case and we're wanting to decrease the amount of cerebral blood flow, we'll actually change our ventilator settings so that we are decreasing the amount of CO2 and making the patient more alkalemic. That way we decrease the amount of cerebral blood flow Um, You can also see uh, seizures if this is um, a pretty profound alkalemia picture as well. So I think it's just important to start off with, you know, like there's several different that That's a super brief overview of different body systems that are going to be affected when you have an imbalance. You also have proteins that are denatured. You're going to have a bunch of other body processes that are going to be affected. That's not the, that's not the goal of this talk to go through all of those different things. What we want to do is talk through, okay, what are we going to see when we get an ABG? Then how can we interpret it? And then from that interpretation, we'll go briefly into a few interventions. But Mostly, we want to have a good understanding of what the ABG is telling us so that we can effectively manage these patients. It's important when we start, we're just going to talk about some really basic things. And this is something that you've gone over ABGs from... You know, undergrad all the way through your anesthesia training. And so this isn't anything that's new to you, but we still want to start at the very basic uh, level, at the very basic definitions so that we make sure that we're all on the same page. Obviously we're talking about an ABG, we're talking about an arterial sample, not a venous sample. Uh, this is important because you're going to want to get a sample after you have the blood has gone by the lungs and picked up all the oxygen in the lungs. And before it's gone to the tissues and is picking up the byproducts of metabolism and all the different uh, byproducts that it's going to, you're going to see in venous blood. We should mention that you could do a VBG and a VBG isn't, you know, in itself totally ineffective either. There's things that uh, are are ways that that can be effective or helpful for you. It's going to tell you your pH within about 0.03 or 0.04. Your PCO2, it'll actually give you a value within about five millimeters of mercury. And we we know this. Uh, We know that our end tidal CO2 is not going to be exactly the same as our PCO2, Uh, but again, it's going to be off by about four or five. Um, So, that we we know that but it's just helpful to keep that in mind for whatever reason if you weren't able to get an arterial sample there's still some utility to getting a vbg a couple other definitions that I really want to touch on before we get into the main part of this discussion it's important that we remember acidemia is going to be a ph that is less than 7.35 alkalemia is a pH that is greater than 7.45. So that's our range. Ideally, our blood is going to be from 7.35 to 7.45. And just in terms of the definitions or the words that we're using, when we talk about acidemia or alkalemia, that's the state of being either you know, acidotic or alkalotic. When we talk about Acidosis or alkalosis—that is going to be the processes that is changing the blood either to be more on the uh, you know lower side, less than seven point three five, or greater than seven point four five. I mentioned that because we talk about you know through the rest of this discussion respiratory acidosis, metabolic acidosis, or alkalosis, and you can have many of these processes happening at the same time. In fact, many times within our body we have many of them that are happening at the same time. But the value in your blood is either going to be uh, a state of acidemia or alkalemia. Those are, those you're not going to have, you know, both happening at the same time. You're either going to be acidemic or alkalemic.
1: So when you actually get an ABG, there are several samples or measurements that is going to be run. And there, there are different things that we're going to be looking for on the results page of this ABG. And to start, I really want to look at three of the, most basic measurements that are going to help us diagnose the pH balance of the body. And so first of all, it's going to be obviously pH. We're going to look at what is the pH level in the plasma of the bloodstream. Secondly, we want to look at uh, what is the bicarb level. And thirdly, we want to look at what is the PaCO2 level. And when you combine the results of these three values, that's when you start to get a picture of what's going on. Is the body in a acidemic state, an alkalemic state, and what is the cause of that? Is it a respiratory cause? Is it a metabolic cause, et cetera? And so we really want to talk before we go into the actual interpretation of the results, we want to talk about what's going on inside the body. What are the different ends of the spectrum in terms of chemical equations and metabolic processes that would be causing either your pH to change, your bicarb to change, or your CO2 level to change? So what is pH, first of all? pH really indicates the acid base balance or spectrum in the body. pH is on a scale of 0 to 14, and it measures the number of protons, which are H plus ions in the body. So the more protons you have, the more acidic something is. So 7.0 is in the middle of 0 to 14, so that is a neutral value. Now, we talked about how the normal pH in the bloodstream is actually slightly on the basic side because it's above 7. It's 7.35 to 7.45. So while it's slightly on the basic side, that is our normal value. So if we are under 7.35, as Tanner said, we're in an acidotic state. Whereas if we're above 7.45, we're in an alkalotic state. Now, our bodies are constantly working to to balance our pH and maintain our pH at this level. And it does it by balancing the amount of acids and bases in our body. And these acids and bases are constantly either A, being produced, B, being brought into the body, or C, being excreted by the body in order to maintain this balance. And so every single moment that our, our, our bodies are functioning, they are constantly trying to maintain this balance And there are times where it shifts one way or another, but our body has ways to correct it and bring it back. So when we get into actually analyzing these ABGs and you have a patient who is either below 7.35 or above 7.45, you've gotten to the point now where the body is unable to regulate itself back into that normal range. And something in an extreme sense is going on to cause that pH to shift. So let's talk about first... What actually is this spectrum? What is going on? So when oxygen is first delivered to the tissues, you know, the, the oxygen is brought in by the lungs. It's diffused across the capillary membranes in your lungs. It gets into the bloodstream, and it's taken to the left side of the heart and then out to the rest of the body, and it gets to the tissues. Well, once it gets to the tissues, it's going to be used during metabolism by those tissues to provide energy to the cell, and this is often called aerobic respiration. Now, one of the byproducts of this aerobic respiration is going to be producing carbon dioxide. So we think of carbon dioxide, and this is really important moving forward, I want you to think of carbon dioxide as an acid to the body. So just remember, CO2, carbon dioxide, acts as an acid. So CO2 is going to leave the cells, and it's going to be picked up by the hemoglobin molecules that were just dropping off oxygen to those cells. So it's a there's a trade there. The oxygen is is left by the hemoglobin and CO two is picked up by the hemoglobin molecules. And once inside the hemoglobin, that CO two is going to combine with water. I'm going to get into a little bit of chemistry here. That's really important that you pay attention for this next part and understand this equation because it'll save you leaps and bounds with understanding this concept. So the CO two, the carbon dioxide, will combine with water inside the hemoglobin. In the presence of an enzyme called carbonic anhydrase. And when it does this, it forms carbonic acid, which is H2CO3. This carbonic acid then quickly breaks down to form a proton, H, and then bicarb, HCO3. And that is the entire spectrum here of this equation. You really need to know that equation. So, really quickly again, CO2 combines with water to form carbonic acid, which then breaks down to form protons, which are H+, and then bicarb. And the important thing is you can go back and forth in directionality for this equation. So you can start with bicarb and go in the reverse direction and form CO2, or you can start with CO2 and go in the other direction and form bicarb. So what's important here is once bicarb and protons have been made and split up, the protons will stay inside the hemoglobin, while the negatively charged bicarb Leaves the hemoglobin and is exchanged with a negatively a negatively charged chlorine ion. The chlorine will come into the hemoglobin, the bicarb will leave the hemoglobin and sit in the plasma. And this is known as the hamburger shift, if that rings a bell for anybody. Once the blood reaches the lungs, then the process reverses. We go in the back direction of this chemical equation. Your bicarb turns all the way back into CO2. The CO2 diffuses through the pulmonary capillaries into the lungs and then out the body. So that's kind of the whole uh, process here of, of this oxygen coming into the lungs, getting to the cells, turning back into CO2, coming back to the lungs, and then we breathe it out.
0: Have you thought about doing locum tenens work? If you want to earn more money, try new practice settings, expand your clinical skills, and control your own schedule, give locums a try. LocumTenens.com has been placing SRNAs, CRNAs, and anesthesiologists in thousands of assignments across the country since 1995. LocumTenens.com is not only the largest job board in the industry, but also the largest supplier of anesthesia locums. And they're backed by an agency of over 600 associates to guide you through every step of your locum's practice. Take an assignment here and there, or give up the stress of your full-time job entirely. You can make more money in half the time, escape hospital bureaucracy, minimize administrative work, and get back to practicing pure medicine. locumtenants.com will assist you with licensing, credentialing, and privileging. Whether you choose a local assignment or head cross-country, locumtenants.com will pay for your travel and even cover your malpractice insurance. You've got nothing to lose and only experience to gain. Go to locumtenants.com to search for an opportunity today. it's imperative that you understand this chemical equation and understand that this is constantly happening in the body. Constantly, you're having these metabolic processes at the tissues. You're having the hemoglobin come by that is offering oxygen and is also picking up the CO2 and then taking that back to the lungs where it is excreted through respiration. And so it's important that we understand that and understand how that combines, how it combines with water and how you have that chemical equation and then how it shifts back and then uh, is excreted through ventilation. We'll talk about that later in this discussion because, you know, oftentimes when we have these imbalances, I think the the thing that you want to do, or at least I wanted to do initially was, okay, if I'm, if I have an issue with, um, you know, my bicarb's too low, I just want to give bicarb. That makes sense to me, right? Um, but there's, you know, more to the equation then you know just replacing the deficit when we think about this how this chemical equation works if you don't have good ventilation if you're just replacing your bicarb and now you understand how this works as far as the co2 combining here and then it needing to have your you know uh, respiratory function intact to Get rid of that co2 by just giving more bicarb you're not going to really be neutralizing that co2 simply because you're not you know the ventilation is the problem and so i think it's just important that you keep this chemical equation in mind and that you also are are, um you know just aware this is constantly happening and and we'll get into why you know different things cause this to become uh, not balanced or you have issues with your obviously the acid base here moving forward so you know just at the very basic level just keep in mind that if you have too much hydrogen if you have too many acids in the body then your ph is going to drop you're going to become more acidic if you have more bicarb the base if that's present then your body will have an increased ph and will be more basic keep in mind this equation the co2 plus water going to the h2 co3 that's going to then result in the bicarb and hydrogen is constantly in fluctuation and it's moving in both directions. So either you're going to be producing more bicarb in the plasma or you're going to be producing more CO2, which is the acid. So depending on what the pH level of the body is, this equation is going to be constantly shifting one direction or another in order to compensate. So for example, if the body is going to be more acidic, then this equation will shift towards producing more bicarb, which is the base, and that's going to to try to raise the pH level in the body. The same is true in the opposite scenario. Keep in mind the normal bicarb level in plasma is around 22 to 26 mil equivalents per liter. Um, So just keep that in mind when we're thinking about all these different values. We'll get into that a little bit more here when we're looking at the blood gas and we're looking at the values because it's important that you'll know what those values are when you're trying to determine if this is going to be a metabolic process or a respiratory process uh, and again, we'll get into that a little bit more. I think the biggest thing for me to take away from understanding that equation is is going back to what I just touched on just a second ago is that this equation is constantly shifting and trying to maintain homeostasis with the body, so it's going to be shifting back and forth, either producing more acid or more base and uh it's important too that you just understand how this is working as far as you have metabolic processes happening at the tissues and then you know you have these this whole system where it's going to be taking the co2 the acid to the lungs to then be um excreted through ventilation and so you have you know these body systems all working together and here later in the discussion we talk about imbalances it's important to think about, okay, is this an issue that's arising from the respiratory side of things? Is this, you know, the, the cause for the imbalance or is it, you know, at the tissues or throughout the body that's causing this where I have an imbalance in my acid base? So, uh, again, like I said, we're, we'll get into this into more detail, but it's important that you understand how that equation is constantly shifting so that we can evaluate where we see the problem moving forward.
1: So it's important to note before we move on that not all of the CO2 produced in the tissues is going to get brought back into the hemoglobin for this reaction to take place. Some of that CO2 is going to just stay in the plasma and get dissolved into the plasma. And so the total partial pressure of carbon dioxide or CO2 in the plasma, that is known as your PaCO2, and it's calculated out on our ABG. And we're going to get this number, and it's going to come back normal values between 35 and 45 millimeters of mercury. That's what we want to see it at. But now I want to talk about what happens if the body has an increased PaCO2. So we start going higher than that 45 millimeters of mercury mark. Well, CO2 is able to cross the blood-brain barrier, and it's able to go through the equation we just talked about, but now it's going to be doing so inside the brain. So it's going to combine with water, form the carbonic acid, and then split to form the H-plus ions and then bicarb. Well, in this case, once you form those H-plus ions, those protons, they can stimulate central chemoreceptors inside the medulla of the brain, which is what causes our ventilation to increase. So it triggers the, the ventilation mechanism inside of our brain, which is going to cause then more CO2 to be blown out due to a higher minute ventilation. So basically, in essence here, when our CO2 in our bloodstream increases, our body then recognizes, I need to breathe more of this out. So when it crosses the, the blood-brain barrier, it converts to more hydrogen ions. The hydrogen ions are what stimulate those central chemoreceptors to cause the, the body to have a reflex increase in the amount of a re- either respiratory rate or volume of each uh, breath in order to increase that minute ventilation. So what's the result here then? If we increase our minute ventilation, we're going to breathe out more CO2, which will then lower the amount of CO2 left in our plasma. So it'll lower the PaCO2 back within hopefully that 35 to 45 millimeters of mercury. Now, the opposite is also true. If there are not enough or there's not enough PaCO2, if we have a low PaCO2, then those central chemoreceptors are going to not be stimulated and there's a point when you get low enough called the apneic threshold which is where the brain then will just stop sending the signal to take a breath now in awake patients there's going to be other more cognitive influences that are going to stimulate the body to breathe but when we have an anesthetized patient or a sedated patient and the co2 gets low enough that it hits this apneic threshold It's not going to have the body and brain are not going to have those other triggers that are going to cause the body to breathe. So you will remain apneic on this patient, which is also why with a lot of cases that we do, if you don't want the patient to start breathing um, or maybe bucking in the ventilator, et cetera, what we can do is lower the CO2 level enough that you're going to reduce the likelihood that they're going to be taking a breath. And this is the reason why here. So on top of these central chemoreceptors, you also have peripheral chemoreceptors. And these are located in the bifurcation of the common carotid arteries and then also the aortic notch. And these receptors are more sensitive to the PaO2 levels, so the partial pressure of oxygen in the plasma, but it does also respond to the PaCO2 shifts as well. Um, but it really it, it plays an important relay information uh, role by sending a signal through the glossopharyngeal nerve to the respiratory center in the brain that then regulates minute ventilation just like the central chemoreceptors do. Just the only difference here is it's more sensitive to the oxygen level than the CO two level, like those central chemoreceptors were.
0: So that's the respiratory response. Now let's talk about the renal response. The respiratory response like Cole mentioned, is going to be very quick and you're going to see reaction to changes in the PFCO2 concentrations. The renal response is going to be much slower. It can even take several days to have its effect. So bicarb is initially filtered in the kidneys through the glomerulus into the renal tubule. From there, the kidney can regulate how much bicarb it will reabsorb back into the bloodstream before it leaves the nephron and uh, actually goes to the bladder. Because bicarb can't diffuse through the membrane, only CO2 can, bicarb will combine with hydrogen in the renal tubule to form carbonic acid, and then that will break down uh, into CO2 and water. That should ring some bells here when we talk about that because we've already talked about how uh, we see that equation when we're picking up CO2 from the tissues uh, and changing that and then going back to CO2 to be released through the respiratory system. So this is the same equation, it's just going the opposite direction. So this is where bicarb is going to be combining with the hydrogen in the renal tubule. And again, this is gonna form carbonic acid and then that'll break down to CO2 and water. At this point, CO2 and water can diffuse across the renal tubule membrane and then the equation will then go back to form bicarb, uh, again, which will stay in the bloodstream. So again, it's important that you remember that this is constantly shifting back and forth, uh, but I would like to just reiterate here that this is going to take much longer than the respiratory response. So the, the renal response is going to take much longer to do this, but you keep in mind that this equation is constantly going to be going back and forth. The other thing that kidneys can do is they can excrete more uh, hydrogen, more acid in the urine if the body has a decreased pH. So if it's more acidic, uh, then it can get rid of these acids through the urine. A common way of doing that is just by binding the hydrogen to ammonia, which is then excreted in the urine.
1: All right. So now that we know all that background, the time has finally come that we're going to jump into the interpretation of blood gas results. And while the body does, like we said, a great job most of the time at buffering these changes in pH levels, there are times when two extreme events will happen or extreme shifts will happen in this pH value that will either drop it below 7.35 or increase it above 7.45. And when we look and interpret these ABGs, we need to understand the background about how that pH the PaCO2 and the bicarb relate to each other in order to get a better idea of what's happening now inside of the body. So really, as we talked about, that equation is paramount to understanding this. And the thing that we said, and I hope I have to reiterate here, is that CO2 acts more like an acid, bicarb is a base. So the more CO2 you have, the lower your pH will go. The more bicarb you have, the higher your pH will go. And the exact opposite is true as well. So in terms of now looking at your ABG results, how do you interpret it? How do you classify what's going on? And I want to talk about three rules that you need to pretty much interpret almost all ABGs. The first rule is you have to know, obviously, your normal values. And your normal values are your pH level between 7.35 and 7.45. Your PaCO2 is between 35 and 45 millimeters of mercury. And your bicarb is roughly 22 to 26 milliequivalents per liter. And some of these values will shift slightly from source to source that you find. But from a generic standpoint, that's the three normal values that you need to know. Second rule is you have to understand how the fluctuations in the PaCO2 and the bicarb are going to affect your pH. We now understand the background of this. We know the equation of how you convert CO2 to bicarb and and vice versa. So you can see now how this equation will, will basically just shift one direction more than the other in order to correct your pH. So let's say this equation shifts more towards the side of making more C- CO2. So you're getting rid of your bicarb to form CO2 in this equation. So if we increase the amount of CO2, which again is an acid, this is going to make the pH more acidic, which is a decrease in the pH level. But if we decrease the amount of CO2, then there's going to be less of an acid, so that means you're going to have a higher pH level. So that's the first thing to understand. The, there's an inverse relationship between your CO2 and your pH, meaning as CO2 goes one direction, your pH will go the other direction. Now, the second thing here is bicarb. How does bicarb affect your pH level? When we increase bicarb, remember bicarb is more of a base, so our pH will increase more to the basic side the alkalotic side. But if we don't have enough bicarb, if we have less bicarb, then there's going to be less base. So the pH is going to then decrease and become more acidic. So in summary, from that point, your CO2 is inversely proportional to your pH. As one goes up, the other goes down. But bicarb is completely correlated to your pH. So as bicarb goes up, your pH goes up. So that's rule number two. And the third thing you need to know to correctly understand and interpret ABGs is that there are compensations. So this means that the body is working behind the scenes to buffer this pH. And buffer is just a word to mean as the pH swings one direction, it does things to try to neutralize and bring back that pH to a normal level. So we've already talked about all of the ways that the body compensates. This can either be through a respiratory center in the brain. Meaning as the CO2 levels shift or as the pH levels shift, the brain will then either increase the minute ventilation or decrease the minute ventilation. Or you can have compens- compensation from the kidneys by either excreting more hydrogen, bringing back more bicarb, et cetera. And the body is going to do this. And so the problem then is that when you're interpreting your ABG, you need to first look at where your, where your pH is at. Secondly, then, you need to look at, well, what's the correlation? Do I have an altered CO2 value or do I have an altered bicarb value? And which one of those correlates with my pH? Meaning, is the CO2 inversely proportional or is my bicarb directly proportional? And if one of those match up, you know what's going on. But the problem is you might have a second value that's altered, and that's this compensation that comes into play. So when you have two values that are altered both the CO2 and the bicarb. You have to figure out, first of all, which direction is correlated or inversely correlated, and the other one is a compensation. So Tanner's going to go a little bit more in-depth with that.
0: So to summarize that, if the problem with your pH balance on the ABG is a result from your altered PaCO2 level, then that is going to be considered a respiratory issue in nature. This is going to be very important in the future when we talk about our management and also while we're talking about the different processes that are underlying, it's important that you understand, you know, what is driving the imbalance. And we've hopefully gone, you know, in depth enough so far with talking about the different ways that the body is going to be regulating going to be buffering, going to be responding to the different shifts. This is constantly in flux and constantly happening. It's important to know underneath it all what's driving the change in your acid base. So again, if we see a difference in your POCO2, we're going to consider that respiratory. If the problem with your pH balance is from your bicarb level, then we're going to be considering that a metabolic issue. To make this really simple, Cole was talking a lot about the inverse and, and direct correlation and I you know that's exactly right. I think when it you know comes time to actually be interpreting the actual blood gas, whether you're in a high pressure situation or maybe you're just not used to doing this all the time, it's important to make things really simple, at least in my mind. Well the, the most simple I can make this is that if the PACO two and pH are trending in opposite directions, it's going to be a respiratory problem. If the PaCO2 and the pH are going to be trending in the same direction, it's metabolic. So it's one thing to just memorize that sentence and then just you know be able to interpret blood gases. But if you back that up a little bit and you just think through why that makes sense, it's everything Cole just talked about. It's just important to reiterate that so that it's really you know cemented in your mind so that you have a really good understanding of this. So if the PaCO2 and the pH trend in opposite directions, we're going to consider that a respiratory problem. So think about that. If the PaCO2 is going up, remember CO2 is an acid, and then the pH is going down, so that's becoming more acidic. Those are going in opposite directions. Then that means that the reason we're becoming more acidic is because we have increased CO2, which means this is a respiratory issue. If they're going in the same direction, so if we have the, PACO2 that is going down and you also have a pH that is going down, then you're going to say that that is metabolic because think about that. If you have less acid and you are becoming acidotic, that is because you're losing bicarb or that is because of a metabolic process and now you're trying to compensate with getting rid of acid so you're decreasing the PACO2. So again, this is uh, a, a simple rule just to remember that if the PACO2 and pH are turning in the same direction, it's going to be metabolic if they're in opposite directions, just think of it as respiratory. Ultimately, like we just mentioned, it's going to be very important that you understand why that's happening or why you know you need to be able to connect the dots of of you know the the reason for why that is true, but at the very basic level, you can remember that, you can make a lot of headway as far as interpreting these ABGs. So
1: that's going to conclude our first part of this two-part series of going through blood gas analysis. Basically, what we've covered so far is the background that you need to know of what is happening inside the body that's going to alter our pH balance. And then we talked about the rules of how to actually read the beginning steps of an ABG. And so before we close this first episode, before we wrap up this first episode, I want to bring up one last point, point. and that's how do I even look at an ABG when I first see it? What are the first things that go in my mind? And when we get into part two, I really want to go into depth, and we're going to explain when you have metabolic acidosis, how do you, one, know that, but then two, what are the different causes of that? And then three, what are we going to do to treat that? And we're going to go through all four of the main categories that we can diagnose somebody on the ABG. And that is metabolic acidosis, metabolic alkalosis, respiratory acidosis, or respiratory alkalosis. And with those four main categories, I want to end this first episode with how do you know which one's which? So the first thing I always do when I look at an ABG is I look at the pH. And I want to see, am I within my normal range? Then I look at my CO2. Am I within my normal range? And then I look at my bicarb. Am, am I within my normal range? And if you're within the normal range in all three, great. You're, you're looking good. But if the pH is off, if it's below 7.35, I'm going to classify this as either a metabolic acidosis or a respiratory acidosis. If my pH is above 7.45, it's going to be either a metabolic alkalosis or a respiratory alkalosis. So that's the first thing I always do is look at my values, see if they're normal. And then I look at my pH and I say, is it above or below? The second thing then is I look, as Tanner just mentioned, and I see which way it's correlating with the CO2. And if it's inversely proportional to the CO2, I know that... Whatever I am on the pH, whether it's acidosis or alkalosis, I know if I'm opposite my CO2, I'm going to call it respiratory. And then I look at my CO2 and if it's going the same direction as my pH. So if both the bicarbon pH are low, I know it's a metabolic issue, a metabolic acidosis. If they're both high, it's a metabolic alkalosis. And that's how you diagnose and how you label an ABG. And we want to wrap up this first episode at that point. When we pick up on part two... Of, of this topic, we really now want to dive into the actual interpretation of why you're having this result, why the thing is altered, and then what are we going to do to fix it?